streaming online at WPKN.org. And you are tuned to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM. My name is Richard Hill. It's time for the Organic Farm Stand. Stay tuned. Corn in the fields And listen to the rice When the wind blows across the water King harvest is sure they come I work for the union Cause she's so good to me And I'm tuned to WPKN and it's time for this week's edition of the Organic Farm Stand which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month. Um, I just want to double check here. Um, I'm here with Chris Ferriero. My name is Richard Hill and I I want to make sure that uh, our guest Steve Muno is available. Guest uh, Steve, are you there? Yes, I'm here with you. Okay, oh, great. Oh, fantastic. Okay, it All worked right. out perfectly. We're just still trying to understand our infrastructure here. <laughs> it's brand spanking new, and we're kind of uh, clueless about it sometimes. Well, I'm gl- so glad you could uh, uh, take your way, take yourself away from your duties there on Masaro Farm to join us on the air today again, and we really appreciate uh, your heading up the show each week f- for us uh, in, in, in as we still recover from the loss of Guy Beardsley. Well, Steve, um, what's going on at the farm? Or, or take, it from, take it from any point and, and, 
and paint a picture of uh, what life is like on the farm and also what are some of the things you'd like to talk about today. Sure, gladly. Uh, glad to be here once again. Um, so, you know, one of the things on the mind at the moment is that we've got uh, some snow heading our way. So, you know, this is a time, you know, whenever there's a storm in the forecast where we want to make sure that the farm is in good shape uh, for whatever comes. So, you know, the forecast right now showing anywhere from two inches to maybe six or seven inches, and there could be some wind. And so, and we know that, that uh, there's some margin for error there too. We might end up with nothing and we might end up with more. So here at Massaro Farm in the winter, you know, the things we think about about are we, that we've got some animals on the farm. As you know, we've got um, about 200 chickens on the farm laying hens. We have a few goats. Um, you know, and then we've got our vegetables growing in our high tunnels, which are sort of unheated greenhouses. Um, so we want to make sure those are all sort of closed and sealed up. Uh, inside the tunnels, we also cover, we add the sort of frost blankets for all our crops that are growing. So we've still got lettuce in there. We've got uh, carrots and kale. We've got arugula and salad mix. Uh, we also have some cover crop growing in there, and the cover crop doesn't need that extra frost layer. It's, it's um, a frost blanket. It's hardy enough to continue its growth and survive um, these cold spells. But for those those more tender greens in the winter that we that we harvest, you know, when it, when the temps are going to drop real low and we're when we're going to have a, a snowstorm, we'll we'll give them that extra protection with the frost blanket. Um, but for now, while it's you know it's about 38 here and and some sunshine, I've got the doors wide open uh, so that there's fresh air coming through and and actually allowing it to uh, cool off a bit uh, before it gets so it doesn't get too warm. So on a sunny day, even if the temps are in the mid 30s or you know or, or lower, um, just that single layer of plastic we have covering the tunnels is going to make it nice and warm in there. So we'll see temps in the mid 70s, you know, even on a 30 degree day inside that tunnel. Um, but I actually don't want it to get too hot in, in, in those um, in the tunnels. I want it to be warm, but not too hot. Uh, otherwise, we'll create some mildewy and moist conditions. So when it's sunny like this, I open up the tunnels and, and allow fresh air to blow through and, and make sure it doesn't get too hot. Uh, but knowing that there's a storm coming, before the end of the day, I'll cover everything up with those frost blankets, those row covers, and I'll close the doors and seal them shut, uh, and then, you know, see what happens with the storm, uh, remove snow as needed, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. So, so today is about getting a few things done ahead of the storm, making sure the animals all have food and water and that their structures are secure, and that making sure our, our tunnels and everything around the farm is in good shape for what, whatever we see tonight and tomorrow. What are the frost frost blankets made of? What kind of material is that? Yeah, it's um, they're typically a, a woven uh, poly fiber. Um, so we call them uh, row cover, uh, Tipar. There's there's a few brand names out there, but um, they're sort of a translucent white, and they, they come in different um, weights. So there are some very lightweight row covers that um, don't provide much warmth protection, but might help uh, keep pests off and that's one of the things that we use particularly in the spring and the fall for crops that we want to um, you know we don't want to give them extra heat but we want to protect them from pests so as an organic grower uh, and organic growers out there know that we, we sometimes need a physical barrier to protect uh, the crops um, from those pests that'll get in there and, and you know chew on the leaves of our of our greens and things or, or lay eggs that that will you know uh, lead to something hatching and chewing on our leaves um, so it's a it's a woven polyfiber. Um, 
and um, like I said, they come in different weights. So for the winter, we use kind of a medium weight that we double cover, uh, and um, you know it allows light to tran- to to go through. Um, the heavier the weight, the less light transmission. Um, so we use a medium weight, but we double cover for these cold moments. And then you know the other days when it's not cold, not too cold, we, we want to um, allow you know full light through. So we'll we'll remove that row cover uh, on those frost blankets so that they can uh, get all the sunlight um, available uh, and continue their, you know, slow growth uh, throughout the winter. So, Steve, um, I just wanted to ask you, um, is that something that any, like, home gardener could get at a uh, garden supply center? Is that something that they typically sell? That's a good question. Um, you know, there may be some of it at at uh, a garden store. You might you might find bits of that at um, you know, I do tend to order it from a few specific farm supply stores, but I, I think it might it might be out there. That's a good question. I'll, I'll look up um, what's available at the sort of standard garden store. I think some will will certainly have it. Um, you know, and, and as a, a home grower, you could certainly use um, a tarp to cover for these moments. Uh, the the only reason why you wouldn't use a tarp for a long term is that they're not breathable and they don't let water through. So, you know, on the farm scale, you know, outside, if we're covering and using pest protect, using it for pest protection, we really need that water to go through if it's if it's raining, or we need and we need that air to go through so it doesn't get too hot. Uh, in the winter, you know, for a storm, if you want to cover with a tarp briefly and then be able to pull it right off that that'll be fine but if you you know do a non-breathable tarp uh ultimately that would that would kill off your crop so so you wouldn't want to use that for any long term but for a a brief bit of protection you you could use something like that okay thanks and um what was i going to ask oh yeah could you talk a little bit about how you keep uh your crops in the summertime uh safe from marauding animals <laughs> yeah yeah i mean because uh you know that it clearly i mean my little neighborhood where i live uh, people generally build um small fenced in areas where they grow their crops and mm-hmm. uh you know i just don't know how it works on a bigger farm sure sure so i think fences are are uh you know important and and effective for keeping you know pests out of your of your um, garden or farm um, certainly, you know, in, at the home scale, there's um, rabbits, squirrels, deer in your area that might come through. Uh, we deal with the same things here, you know, on our farm, even growing on 10 acres. So we do have a, a fencing that, that excludes deer around uh, all of our growing fields. So um, the deer can't get in. There's an eight-foot-tall fence. Um, you know, and there are gates that we have set up for us to drive and walk through uh, with our with our vehicles and, and equipment. Um, but it keeps the deer out. Now the fence is also set up to have holes big enough so that other wildlife can pass through. So we we want to you know in, in sort of the idea of growing within nature. You know, we're not trying to exclude all of nature. We want the coyotes to come through, the foxes to come through, and still have the predator prey relationship with uh, what other what could be farm pests or things that might eat our crops. So the different rabbits, the rodents, and things that that might nibble at our stuff. We still want you know those things to uh, those predators and pray to uh, interact uh, on our farm. But the deer are not something that we can, you know, tolerate the level of, um, you know, impact on our crops. So one of the ways, so we've got that deer infrastructure, the deer exclusion fencing uh, to keep them out. Um, 
We'll use those the row covers, particularly on our newest newest planted crops, to keep. Uh, it might be birds off them. It might be you know particularly at the edges of our farm where we're close to the tree lines to keep things like uh, rabbits and squirrels away from our crops and protect them with that physical barrier. We might use something like um, a, a scented spray, like a garlic spray or a, a you know a, a different kind of like a peppermint oil. Even the Dr. Bronner's you know mixed with water um, sprayed on on crops uh, can help keep some, um, you know, biting things away from our, from our tender greens. Uh, and then some other strategies we'll use is planting things that are less desirable around the edges of the farm. So things, you know, that have a strong scent, uh, something like basil or any of our herbs, you know, the, the animals that might want to eat our greens, you know, they're leading with their, their sort of furry noses and their things that they're guiding them. And if they interact with the basil, it kind of gets right up on them and, and um, discourages them away. Uh, likewise, we'll, we'll tend to put a lot of hot peppers near the edges of the farm and, and just things that, that are less desirable to kind of create a protective border. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of home gardeners that, you, you know, you'll, you'll do a lot of mint borders around the edges of your farm or your garden. I think that's a great strategy to help uh, discourage um, the browsing and grazing that might happen from other, from other pests. Um, but the other thing we do is plan for some loss. So, you know, if I'm planting, uh, you know, 100 heads of lettuce or if I want to harvest 100 head of lettuce, I've got to assume that maybe, you know, 5 to 10 percent might, uh, might have some impact. So I'll plan for that and plant, you know, 105, 110, maybe 115 or 20 to make sure that I get what I need from our harvest. Uh, and if I've got, if they all survive, great. And if I've lost a little bit, uh, you know, then I've, I've planned appropriately um, to share some with, uh, with our farm neighbors. So, uh, so actually, I have, so I have another question more directed toward like home gardening. Um, is there anything uh, like I have, you, you talked about, um, oh, no, I can't think of what it is, uh, uh, plants you have in there to um, protect the soil. Um, I can't mm-hmm. think of what they're... I'm, right, those cover crops. Right, cover crops. So I have, um, I, I guess I would call it natural cover crops, just these like really small weeds that have covered over my dirt. Would that be adequate or would you recommend like putting leaves over those? Any ground cover is great, so that that's going to be that's going to help protect your soil. You you can certainly add leaves on top of that, but if you've got a, a natural existing ground cover, and, and even you know undesirable things that we might call weeds, you know those, those are effective in protecting the soil. So you know they they might have they might compete with your crops eventually, but especially at this time of year, if you've got something protecting the soil whether it's ground cover that you intended to be there or not, uh, you're off to a great start. Um, It means that, you know, any heavy rain is not hitting bare, exposed soil. It's not going to run off and erode any of your soil. It's not going to leach any of the nutrients away. So if you've got some ground cover there, you're in great shape. If you also want to add on some leaves, there can be some benefit to that too in protecting the soil and helping you get in there a little earlier and, you know, adding some nutritional value um, to the soil over time. But, uh, you know, if you're comfortable with what you've got with a little bit of green and making sure that there's not uh, exposed soil there, then, then you're already in great shape. So um, what about, um, so I have a, a few different perennial herbs growing. Um, uh, oh, man, I can't think of, like oregano and, and some other things. Would you recommend, like, covering those plants with leaves to protect them or basically just leave them how they are? 
um, you can you can leave those where they are. You might put a little bit of leaves like around the around the base around the base of it, so that any kind of uh, extreme weather event doesn't erode away any of the soil. So, um, but you know, if you've had them there for a long time and they've been successful, uh, you know, in, in coming back and and regenerating each year and and providing more of of whatever it is, whether it's oregano or or sage or thyme, uh, maybe even sometimes rosemary can survive the winter. I know lavender in a lot of people's homes does a great job of, of regrowing. Um, you know, some leaves, maybe even some some wood chips might be okay around that. Uh, you know, I tend to favor um, leaves, but also wood chips can be appropriate around some of those crops. Um, so be, be a little careful that chips might um, steal out some of the sort of dry out some some nitrogen, which helps those those plants grow. But um, yeah, just a little protection around the soil, around the base of those plants could 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 be fine. But you might have also okay. seen that uh, those plants survive, you know, just fine each each year, right. year without any protection. Okay. Thanks. <clears throat> yeah. In a minute, we're going to uh, get uh, Vincent K on the line, our bee man, honey bee man. Uh, but I'm just trying to. Um, I'll wrap this up with Steve. Um, so, Steve, you're you're are you are you a solo act out there in the wintertime? Do you have a staff and uh, other helpers, volunteers, or paid who uh, participate in the uh, upkeep of the farm during the winter? Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's never just me. I mean, the, you know, there are, there are some moments where where it's uh, you know first thing in the morning or or you know when storms come in that it might be me at the farm since I live here. But uh, I've got a great team of people, in, you know, and in the winter, uh, we base our work on what conditions allow. So we expect a, a couple days a week um, of, of work. So that's, uh, you know, our paid team coming in. And when there's when the conditions are good enough and we can invite people to help, we might have volunteers. We've got a wonderful community of people who help uh, with some of our animals, tending to the goats uh, and our educational uh, chickens as well. So we you know, helping with food and water mornings and, and evenings such. Um, but yet to manage, you know, all the crops we've got, I do need, I do need uh, the team of folks I've got here who do a phenomenal job of, um, you know, managing and harvesting and bringing stuff. You know, we'll, we'll be at the, the the farmer's market this weekend. It's the opening weekend of the winter market in New Haven for City Seed at uh, Worcester Square Conte West School. So we spent some time yesterday knowing that we had the storm coming. Uh, you know, uh, tomorrow we um, did some harvest yesterday of, of some kale, arugula, lettuce and such so that we were ready to bring that to market. That sounds sounds tempting. What what is the um, uh, the status of the CSA uh, subscription at, at your um, at your farm now? Last time you mentioned that you still had you know you you you, you had an increased number of people who wanted to participate and be shareholders. Um, how's that going? And uh, you want to put out the call for more people to uh, participate? Yeah. Absolutely. There's, um, you know, we, we have space available in the CSA to sign up for our, we have a 20 week CSA option for pickup at the farm or, or to a delivery spot in New Haven. And we have a 10 week, you can choose to come every other week or 10 weeks in a row. Or, you know, if you're gone for some of the summer, you can take those three to four weeks off and come back and pick up, you know, when you're, when you're in town. Uh, so we've got, you know, we're probably at about 30% subscribed and we usually, you know, have a good burst of signups right at the end of our, of our main season. So that happens in October, November, as we wrapped up, uh, it stays a little quiet over the holidays, and then we see it tend to see a renewed interest um, 
January, February, and then when it starts to get warm again, you know, as spring really kicks in, we, we get that sort of final push to, to sell out our CSA. Um, you know, in, in next month, actually, I'll want to talk about National CSA Week. So they've found that sort of mid-late February is, is a time throughout the country where there's a bulk of CSA signups. And so that that's now coincided with a national effort to sort of campaign for CSAs and get the word out to, you know, support farms in your community and sign up for a CSA for the season ahead. So the, so the options are there, you know, for our vegetables, for our eggs. Um, we work with High Hill Orchard to provide some, some fruit as an add-on option as well. So, um, yeah, we'd love to have, uh, you know, folks return and some new folks join us this year as well. Are you? Uh, do you have anything special planned for the uh, winter winter conference, the NOFA conference, uh, the fortieth winter conference actually, which I believe is on February. Not sure if you have the date right there. I'm, I'm trying to find it. I do. Yeah. So this year it's a little different because you know we're doing everything virtually. I think the start date is February 11th. That's right. And there's yeah. about. Um, two weeks of, of uh, virtual workshops that will be offered. Some will be sort of um, uh, interactive, you know, Zoom-based, and you can you can um, ask questions and such. I think there's going to be some recorded uh, content as well, uh, some highlights. Uh, you know, I wanted to just mention one of the things over the winter that we do is um, – you know, I'm looking at seed catalogs, and I'm also reading. You know, I'm, I'm trying to gain some, some more knowledge, some inspiration, and just uh, some enjoyment. And uh, I think one of the fun things for this winter is there's, uh, at the NOFA conference, there's going to be a, sort of a book club. Um, so and they're going to be uh, talking about the uh, Farming While Black by Leah Penniman book, which is, uh, I think, you know, everyone should be uh, looking at. She's, uh, you know, a phenomenal farmer and leader, you know, in the world of agriculture and, you um, you know, this is an important book for us to be looking at, and so there's going to be a book club style discussion uh, during the conference. Um, so I think that's something that's exciting. Uh, we'll have a representative from High Mowing talking about seeds. Uh, Paul Feenan, who's one of our you know New England seed reps, uh, will be there. Um, there'll be a workshop on hemp. Um, you know, there'll be a wor- workshop on, on, on worms and, and uh, you know, there's a new jumping worm out there. I, I'm, I'm not an expert on that yet, so I don't want to get into too much details, but that's a new sort of uh, concern in the soil. Um, so there's, there's a lot there. I'd say, you know, go to ctnofa.org and there's, um, you know, this is, the registration's open. And I think we've got a great conference ahead. Yeah, and they're actually soliciting proposals from a general public and, you know, people in the farming community, which are due on February 15th. So if you have a thought, an idea for a workshop or something that you wanted to uh, present, uh, you should uh, send, let me see that they have an email. Yeah, just send an email to ctnofa. Uh, no. They, they have this, this on their website, they have this thing yeah, scrolling. Ctnofa.org. Um, yeah, okay. there's still a few uh, workshop slots open, so we'd love to hear from you if you've got something out there, you know, that you want to present and talk about, um, you know, or if you have an idea and you want to hear from someone else, you know, send us a note and we can, um, uh, you know, try to make that happen. So there, there are still a few open workshop slots, so and we're still, you know, yeah. finalizing that uh, to take those proposals. Yeah, uh, so d- uh, just don't forget, anybody, don't forget that the ctnofa.org is the web address and this uh, proposal email is ctnofa at ctnofa.org for sending something, a proposal to them. 
Um, Steve, I think we're going to uh, bring Vincent in and uh, see what he's up to. I'm trying to. He's amazing because he always uh, has something, even though you know his operation is is quite different in the winter time than it is in the summer, obviously. But Vincent, are you with us? I am, and thank God it is different. Oh my gosh, we need a, we need a break. <laughs> <laughs> and what anyhow, sense? Um, thank you, Richard, for inviting me on again. And uh, um, it is we've been kind of um, lucky that we've had a, 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 a no snow so far. It has allowed us to get into the bee yards quite easily down some of the uh, long trails into the woods and various places where we keep the bees around the state of Connecticut. Uh, once it snows and the snow pack gets deep. Uh, we just can't, um, although sometimes we can access, access them, but it's, uh, it's harder and, um, we don't get any younger. So it's, um, one of those things that, uh, you know, right now, uh, we also were kind of blessed with uh, pretty mild temperatures last week, which, um, if beekeepers, um, were checking their hives for food supplies, gave you a small window in which to feed your bees sugar syrup or some kind of um, food to get them through um, a cold spell, which we're, we're kind of coming into now, um, and it is winter, so we're going to probably stick with it. But um, we were able to get some syrup on some of the hives, uh, not that many actually, but I always think, you know, maybe that one or two that's just a little light, we just saved this hive for, for another year. So it's, um, it's the beekeeper's responsibility. It's, it's animal husbandry, and like uh, Steve said, it's uh, it's important before the storms and the cold weather to get your livestock in shape and make sure that everything is as it should be. Um, the other problem, however, with feeding bees in the winter is that, okay, the, the warm weather ends, and we had weather where it was, you know, 30 degrees and up even at night, which was great. The bees can take down syrup in that weather. Not the best, but it's it's okay. And um, they can process it and evaporate it. Um, but once it turns cold below that um, at night, what happens is that you can actually kill the hive by feeding it because the, the cans of syrup that we use um, tend to work like pumps, diaphragm pumps, and actually pump the cold syrup onto the bees whether they're taking it down or not. So it's, um, again, every time you introduce moisture into a hive of bees, um, it's it's something that they have to regulate. And in the winter, it's almost impossible for them to do so. Yes, we put on syrup at the beginning of last week, but at the end of last week, we took it off so that no more syrup. The weather's just too cold now. And, um, and I think, you know, they took down a quarter of a gallon. So it's, you know, it's enough to get them through another two to three weeks. And, um, you know, the clusters, as, as I've talked about in the past shows with you guys, um, you know, bees, honeybees don't sleep during the winter. They don't hibernate like other critters, you know, including bears. But it's... Um, it's one of those things they form a tight cluster inside the hive and they consume um, their stores of usually pollen and honey um, uh, throughout the winter. And that metabolism creates heat and keeps the inside of that hive 60 degrees, 65 degrees. However, at the end of February, the beginning of March, when the queen starts laying more and more eggs as the days get longer, that temperature will go up to 95 degrees at the center of the hive. So they can go through food very, very quickly at the beginning of uh, the end of the winter, beginning of the spring. So you have to really be on top of that then. But one of the other byproducts of their consuming honey and, and uh, or sugar, whatever it may be, is that they create carbon dioxide, which really has to be vented out of the top of the hive. So beekeepers should provide a little 
uh, piece of wood or something underneath uh, the outer cover and the inner cover to provide a little space so that the air can circulate in there. And again, um, carbon dioxide can escape. And also, if it does not escape, it creates condensation and again will drip on the hive and create a chilling factor, which, you know, the hive may or may not be able to survive. So uh, ventilation is extremely important. Um, and I guess that's about it. We've been, um, you know, we pulled into one bee yard um, last weekend and uh, actually not too far from you, Steve, over, over there on 313, uh, Route 313. And, and we found that one of the batteries had gone dead with all this rain and cloudy weather. So that was uh, on the electric fence around the hives, the, the bare fences. So we scrambled to get that back in production uh, within hours. Um, but that kind of those kind of chores um, are, are nonstop. Uh, it gives us a little more time to be a little more thorough in the winter, to go over machinery, trucks, et cetera, change the oil, grease stuff, make sure everything is working, you know, appropriately for for the next season coming up. So we're doing that kind of maintenance uh, work. We're also building new hives right now. Um, wood is ex- has gone up in price astronomically, but. Uh, we have a pretty good source, a supplier, and um, we build our own hives. Um, and uh, we, we're putting out, a, we have a new bee yard in Prospect, Connecticut, um, that we're going to be opening up this spring. And it's a gorgeous location. Um, it's uh, a parcel of land, um, which I guess they probably clear cut about 50 acres of white pine on this slope that goes down to a reservoir. And um, that has, uh, in the last two to three years, grown into a complete blanket of blackberry. So we're really looking forward to uh, a crop of blackberry honey this year. Wow. So we'll see what happens. Huh. However, the, the person who, who we met to go over the location with um, and all the uh, contracts and papers and leases and whatnot um, uh, said, you know, you, you are going to have a bear fence. I said, yeah, we have <laughs> Very few bee yards without one right now. He says, "Yeah, there's a lot of bears up here." So, we're looking forward to it. But we're also, you know, and we and we did a little research because the location that we accepted um, is uh, very rocky. And so I said, I don't think most of our uh, bear fences, our electric fences, run on solar panels with a, a deep cell marine battery as a source for power. And we usually have three eight-foot copper grounding stakes outside of the fence to achieve ground. And so um, I didn't, I said, I don't think we're going to be able to drive these stakes into into the ground up here. It's too rocky. So we researched it a little bit, and so we're probably going to put out mats of chicken wire around the bee yard and use the chicken wire itself as ground. And, of course, it will also provide um, an extra layer of uh, defense against the bears. See what happens. Hmm. We're getting a little bit of an echo. I'm not sure if that's from somebody from your phone, Steve, or or, or Vincent's. Uh, but in any case, uh, be, just be be aware that your voice may be coming back at you a little bit. Um, so, Vincent, do you have any adventure stories uh, about bears? In other words, have you ever encountered them while you're working? And uh, you're, you know, what of your dog? How do you react, and how do your dogs react if that's if that were the case? Um, we did have, um, I would say, maybe 15 years ago, we had a bee yard in Bethany. I hear that echo now. I'm trying to understand um, whether that's your phone or my phone. But I'm going to try to maybe pick up this phone and hold it differently. Maybe that will help. Yeah, it's, a, it's, um, it's probably your cell. That's what it, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, we had a, a bee yard, and we still have the bee yard in Bethany, and um, we had uh, a bear, uh, Bear 59 was his exact name. <laughs> we had a tag in his ear, and he had just, I had come into the bee yard, and I said, oh, my God, what happened? I thought it was like a bunch of teenage boys that that had <laughs> gone in there with, with quads and just knocked over every single hive, up to like 20 hives. Oh, my God. And I said, oh, my God, this is a total destruction. I mean, it was so thorough. And things were dragged into the woods like 100 yards. <laughs> I'm like, oh, for crying out loud. And then I saw the bear prints in the mud, and I said, oh, my God. So long story short, it 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 was a it was a mistake by uh authorities they were moving and relocating a problem bear from derby to supposedly bark hampstead connecticut and they never did they they dropped it off in bethany thinking that this would be okay be okay <laughs> without checking the um uh the uh registry of beekeepers in the area cuz uh under connecticut state statute all beekeepers are required to register the number of hives and the location of the hives, and what I do. So, I mean, I, I, we have to uh, register those hives with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, and they never checked that registry, and so they just dropped us there. Anyhow, it, it did a lot of damage, and um, we scrambled to get our first um, rather primitive electric fence up. You know, we went to Agway and a number of other stores and got you know very subpar kind of equipment, but it worked and gave us time to recover and. Um, and I'm there one evening trying to uh, put the hives back together, and all of a sudden, um, my dog started to growl, and I stood up, and the bear stood up maybe 50 yards away, and he was coming back for another snack, and there it was, bear 59. And he stood up on his hind legs, and I stood up on mine, and <laughs> he heard the dogs, and he took off like a shot. So huh. never saw him again, mm. never saw him again, but... Um, yeah, they're around, and um, we have uh, sometimes trail trail cameras that um, we put up in the bee yards, and those help us monitor wildlife <laughs> as well as people. But um, we ha- we have very little damage from people. Although this year we had a number of cameras stolen. Hmm. Um, I think there was just a lot of hikers in the woods because of COVID, with nothing else to do. But um, in any event, um, sometimes on the cameras we'll see a bear circling the fence. And getting zapped along the way, you know, he's testing the fence all the way around, and um, it's quite amazing to see. And you know, at some point, I'm going to probably do a video or, or approach the fence company where I buy my equipment and say, "How about an extra fence? This is great advertising." You know, it's uh, mm. it works. It, it does work. It's humane. Doesn't hurt the bear, and um, you know, it allows us to coexist. Um, so in any event, um, that's what we're doing now, and uh, but we're very excited about the new bee yard because we'll probably put anywhere from 20 to 25 hives there, and uh, just the, the foliage and the the uh, the possibility. This is what beekeepers dream of in the winter, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like children dream of candy canes and candy and all sorts of stuff. Well, we dream of honey and beeswax and other things, but it's um, it's a great time to do that. And um, I did want to mention real briefly. I don't know how much time I have, but uh, the bees. You know, during the fall and late summer, they do use this substance um, called propolis. And I haven't talked about propolis very much on your show, but propolis is a tree resin or a flower resin that the bees gather specifically for 
uh, winterizing their hide. It's, it, they use it to waterproof and windproof the hide. And it almost looks like glass when it's hardened. Um, and it almost is like tar when they first gather it, like roofing tar. So it's, it's very viscous and very hard to get off your hands. Um, and it's actually when the bees bring it back on their legs, it's, it takes other bees to, to pull it off of their legs because it's, hmm. it's so uh, thick. But uh, Napoleon used it to waterproof his ships. And Stradivarius used uh, it to, in a, in a um, in to, to varnish his violins, et cetera. So it's got a long history of, of usages and somewhat medicinal now. It's sometimes in natural toothpaste. It has an antiseptic quality. So uh, it, it has been used as a surgical ointment over the uh, centuries uh, to uh, antibacterial uses in that line. But um, the bees gather it and it's, it's both a blessing and a curse, but we don't harvest it, but it's, it's, it's there. And in the cold, you can, if you go into a hive in this cold weather, you have to pop everything because everything is sealed and it's almost like a glue. So if you, you've got a, a pry bar, you're like prying off the top and you hear, oh, and you know, it, it just pops off because it's sealed. They seal everything with it. And of course, the, bee, the bees hear this sound and you know, here they come, you know, it's sort of like knocking at their door <laughs> as you uh, as you do it, but it's it's an interesting substance. It it has a kind of aromatic minty flavor sometimes, or smell, um, and it's quite lovely in its color, from light orange to kind of a dark red. Um, it's beautiful stuff. It's just, uh, but we don't harvest it, so it's just. Uh, it's, it yeah, this is ringing a bell. Like I've seen it in health food stores. Is that possible? Yeah. Is it has yeah. some medicinal yeah. property or nutritional yeah. value? Yeah, mostly in. Well, I've seen it in toothpaste. Um, Probably it's in some cosmetics. It, del- it, it dissolves somewhat with alcohol um, and somewhat with water. So it, it can be worked with um, as a product, but um, we don't harvest it yet, at least. So uh, but I wanted to mention it because, you know, at this time of year, everything is coated in there with propolis. So if you do break the propolis seal, just know as you go into a hive to check for food or other issues that you compromise their windproofing and possibly their waterproofing of the hive. Yeah. So, so, so what do they do? I mean, and they have to spring into action at that point, or like no? At this, at this time of the year, there's nothing that springs into action. Everything is <laughs> slow motion, so it's just too cold um, to do anything. And so, it is what it is. Yeah, they won't really um, get to putting that propolis seal back in place until next autumn. Mm. So, so, uh, so Vincent, what, um, where, where's the propolis come from? What plants? Yeah, a variety of plants. Um, uh, I always wonder that, um, but you know, ver- plants, and when it gets really, really hot, produce a resin and it usually is in the buds, um, not in the flower, but around the base of the buds and in the joints of the, of the new growth of the tree. And in the hot weather, it exudes this gooey substance, and it's, a, it's like a roofing tar. It's a resin. And mm-hmm. it, it probably, I don't know exactly why the trees exude it, other than it's, it's kind of like pitch in a pine tree. Um, it's that thick, and it's that kind of, uh, you know, uh, consistency and uh, uh, color sometimes even. But it's, it's, it's interesting. It probably has antibacterial um, properties in, in growth, new growth in trees in that, you know, it prevents bugs from entering or, or any kind of mildews or diseases from entering new growth on, on certain trees. So I would imagine, um, you know, pine trees, yes, but oak trees and even even flowers probably produce it to some extent. 
I don't know, actually. Um, it would be a good question to ask someone um, who might know, um, scientists, what the Connecticut source of propolis is, the primary source, because um, I just don't know that. But I would imagine that it's birch, maple, oak trees, maybe pine trees, something like that um, in the fall. So, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm picturing bees mostly uh, working around, um, you know, plants and flowers. I, I never really think of bees um, gathering, um, gathering pollen and nectar from trees. Well, I hate to say this, Chris, but 80% of all the honey <laughs> in Connecticut comes from trees and shrubs. Oh, so okay. we don't have enough flowers. This is a suburban community. Um, that we have in the state, and it's no longer agricultural. However, alongside that has a regrowth or a regrown forest, which is accompanied, you know, uh, many, many years ago, I mean, there wasn't a forest in Connecticut. Everything was pasture for livestock. So that's where the stone walls have have come in. I mean, as kind of ancient artifacts of of, uh, antiquity for for the United States, anyhow, um, or the colonists, I mean, I mean, those weren't forests back then. Those were fields. So the sources of nectar have changed um, accordingly. And, um, yeah, I would, I would say, you know, you, you, you start in the spring with things like goldenrod. And in the swamps, um, again, you have uh, uh, skunk cabbage. And you have um, even in another month or so, you have witch hazel starting to bloom. And that's a shrub. And then it goes from there. But it, it kind of um, you've got black locust trees. You've got tulip poplar. You've got wild chokecherry. You've got all sorts of maples that bloom early and provide early sources of nectar and pollen. Um, but, you know, everyone sees the dandelions. And, of course, there's bees on those. And so people so, and, and it is a good source of nectar. Don't get me wrong. But then, you know, you've got Russian olive, which is a huge source of nectar for bees in Connecticut. Um, as invasive as it might be, um, it really does um, begin or trigger what we call the swarm instinct in bees because the nectar flow from large stands of autumn olive or Russian olive are so strong and um, so intense that the bees just say, okay, it's time to reproduce, and and they swarm. Their hives just can't take it. And um, so anyhow, there are these sources, and then, you know, then it kind of tapers off from the trees after the spring, and you move into a lower kind of canopy of shrubs that are still blooming, um, sweet pepper bush um, or clethra uh, in July, late July in the swamps. And you've got uh, goldenrod and other things that start in the fall. So, um, you know, it starts low, goes up high, and then comes back down. <laughs> when do, do the autumn olives become uh, attractive to the bees? Is it with, do, they fl- do they flower early? And then they flower. Let's see. They flower about the same time we're moving bees out of the orchards because we all our bees go into the orchards in Connecticut. So we do all the big orchards, and I would say that's probably uh, third week in May uh-huh. um, is when you get. Uh, and I always tell the orchard men, I say, you know, I don't care what you're trying to pollinate with my bees. Um, if the autumn olive blooms early this year, you're not going to find a single bee in your orchard. <laughs> because it it just can't compete with um, autumn olive. I mean, so if you've got large stands of autumn olive around your orchard, you either cut it down or just go to the autumn olive and you'll see all my bees there. <laughs> <laughs> and what what is so attractive about the autumn olive to the bee, as I mean, as opposed to the, the, the orchard trees that you're mentioning? 
Well, it's probably the amount of nectar produced. Um, bees are, you know, kind of opportunistic. Uh, I would say probably a little bit like people. Um, you know, they always figure we can get more from this flower um, than that flower. And yes, they'll go to certain flowers based on color, um, you know, uh, in the color, the infrared index. So, and, and they, you know, inadvertently move pollen around, but it, at the same time, the sense of smell and, and learned behavior um, and, and cognition, I mean, once they stumble upon this stuff, I mean, you know, the word is out and they come back and communicate that to the other bees and out they go and they know that this is the place to go for huge, <laughs> no longer cups in which you sip from. These are bowls in which you guzzle from. And so, you know, this is, this is how they look at it. And so they can get more in the course of the day. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, uh, usually it's time so that the, the orchard has plenty. Well, not always, because the weather sometimes doesn't cooperate. Early in the spring, and this is one of the big factors with climate change, which everyone is having to deal with, including beekeepers, but certainly orchard men and, and growers, is that, um, you know, in the winter, uh, on a mild winter, oh, everyone says this is terrific for plants and this and that. But what has happened is that you've pushed the, the uh, advancement or maturation of your buds on certain plants forward to the point where they're really kind of way ahead of themselves in, in a good way. And so then we have that quarterly change from winter to spring. And I can't tell you how many springs have been cold and wet hmm. and even with a frost. So an early bloom on a fruit or even any kind of tree is not good, um, especially uh, in an area like ours where a late frost or even a middle frost is quite expected. Um, and so the seasons are changing. It's not always um, changing in the warmth, but certainly the winters are warming and the springs are cooling. And um, this was, you know, well documented in Florida with the orange growers. I mean, this, the orange growers in Florida, you know, have had to go to California. I mean, there, there is no longer a huge industry in Florida the way there used to be 30 years ago because things shift and change. And so, um, you know, some techniques like painting the, the uh, trunks of peach trees or apple trees white so that it reflects the heat so that they don't move too fast towards bloom huh. in the early spring is done. Um, there's, so there's little tricks that people have adapted to, but, you know, it's it's a constant struggle to, um, and it's the same thing with beekeeping. You know, now that we have mites, because um, I did experience um, beekeeping before the mites came into this country. Um, I've been at it that long, I hate to say, but it's um, it's been almost 40 years and certainly 20 years with the uh, Varroa uh, mite, which has changed beekeeping as we know it, but now it has changed itself uh, it, it now doesn't get just one life cycle or two life cycles. It gets three and four life cycles in one season. So that where we used to only have to treat once for mites, now we're certainly having to treat twice. And so, and you have to time it just right. Otherwise you're wasting your money. And the mite treatments are quite expensive. So we take it uh, quite seriously when, when we're dealing with thousands and tens of thousands of dollars. Hmm. It just, uh, and that that is a direct result of a warmer summer uh, and, and periods of warm warmth that we've never experienced. You know, I say 90 degrees for three months, uh, three months straight. You know, it's it's just a, a long time to be that hot out in, out in the fields. 
Steve, do you have any anything you'd like to interject here or a question for for Vincent? Well, I would just you know echo that and, and agree that 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 um, you know that change in what we're seeing in the seasons and the temperatures, you know, with the same um, you know pest expansion of their life cycles, the the increase in number of life cycles, and the uh, the more care we have to take is certainly an issue for for all growers. You know, the uh, one of the pests that we see, you know, a, a leaf miner getting into our spinach and and beets, uh, it's really changed how we grow because they've had a they've been able to to expand the length that they're impacting the farm. So it's not just, you know, um, late spring and summer. It's now uh, late winter, early spring, and into the fall. Um, so whereas we used to grow lots of spinach in our high tunnels, we stopped doing it because we were giving them even more time to, to survive and grow in the high tunnels uh, by providing that safe space for them to grow and have another generation. So, yeah, these, these climate change issues are, are, you know, affecting us, uh, all kinds of growers, from, from, from beekeepers to orchardists to, uh, to, to vegetable growers and, and um, you know, and, and everywhere. So it's, it's certainly an issue, and we have to keep ad- adapting and doing our best to uh, mitigate these changes. And uh, and I'd also imagine, um, like I, I remember, like last winter was relatively warm. I think I shoveled snow twice, so I'd imagine that affects things too in terms of the the insects not dying in the winter. That's true. You know, I always, uh, though I enjoy this, the, the warmth, particularly in November, as it sort of gives us an extra moment of, of harvest and ease of work outside. Uh, I do root for a really good cold snap and even a, a potentially longer cold snap to try to uh, kill off some of those pests, uh, you know, large and small from, from the little caterpillars and bugs and, and that last life cycle of those bugs that might eat at our plants, but also pushing some of the small rodents, uh, you know, uh, away. And, and keeping them down and away from our crops, so um, you know we need those those uh, those cold snaps uh, in late fall, in early winter to, to sort of break up some of those life cycles and uh, keep our keep all of our, our plants and animals free of, of pests for a period, and give our gives ourselves a little break from those pests. We we like the frozen ground just so we can drive to our bee yards instead of <laughs> yeah. mud. You know, that's a big deal, too, certainly. I mean, right now, as we move around the farm now, uh, that's a big issue because if it's not frozen, it means, you know, it's a little wet and and we can be eroding our soil. So we've got to be, you know, really strategic about how we move around the farm, uh, you know, from late fall through early spring because we don't want to wear out the ground anywhere. We don't want to be, you know, in mud. We want to, but if it's frozen, it means uh, we're pretty safe to to drive over in in spots in in our regular travel lanes. Yeah. That's true, Vincent. I want to. I just want to ask you a, sort of a personal thing. That, but how do you, you, you? Every time you're on the show, you talk about oh, we're opening a new, uh, <laughs> a, we're opening a new uh, bee uh, colony in such and such a town, and uh, it's this continual expansion that you do. How do you cover all that ground? And and do you do you? I mean, do you want to be increasing, or is it like what? What yeah. is the imperative? Well, no, we love what we do, and I have great helpers. That's the key. Uh-huh. Um, if, if, if you don't hire people to do the work and pay them well, which I think I do, and according to them anyhow, they're pretty happy. But it's something that, you know, I mean, I love what I do. And I think, um, you know, in, in an area, well, first of all, we're in a pandemic. And I always think that, you know, when things are really bad, you can do really good things. And I think that in Connecticut in general, minus the pandemic, 
we've become non-agricultural. And, and you know, there are some farms and some very good farms, don't get me wrong, but in general, we're not agricultural anymore. And so I see that as an opportunity to become exactly that, agriculturally based, and that the room is there for expansion and to make money. I mean, that's what we do. I mean, you know, we, we, we like that. We like to have healthy bees. Um, it's a challenge to keep up with all, everything that is required to do healthy bees. And, um, but no, I, you know, we love what we're doing and, and to be working outside in some of the most beautiful, you know, if you would want to call it this real estate in Connecticut, it's just, um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a treat to, yeah. to leave the city, which is where we process the honey, but to go out to some of the most beautiful, um, landscapes that Connecticut has to offer every day. And it's just, um, you know, it's good for the soul. And, um, and to be working with, you know, a critter, which by its very nature is organic. Um, I mean, we grow a lot of garlic also. It's another conversation, but the reason I chose garlic was because by its very nature, it's organic. It thrives on goodness and the common good of its, of its soil and it's, it's all the microbes and everything inside it. Well, honeybees are the same way. It thrive They thrive on, on the goodness of, of their environment. Um, the common good of, of all the things put together, the source of water, the uh, foliage and, and the nectar sources, um, all of that. And it's just, um, it's, it's very exciting if, if you're a grower or, um, yeah, we, we, we do like to expand. We try to do it smartly. You ought to make um, it should be showing. But it's, um, it's, I don't think we're at the point of being out of control. <laughs> no, no, I just, I, I'm just amazed that you are always, uh, you know, talking about, oh, opening a new, a new uh, bee I've yeah. uh, think yard, bee yard, I guess is yeah. the way you yeah, put it. Yeah, and yeah. it's just like, what an industry. <laughs> I mean, you must, you know, you're rivaling uh, um, so, some of the large employees, employers in our state. <laughs> I don't think that, but it's, it's, it's a good, honest living. I'll tell you, we work very hard at it. And when things go wrong, unfortunately, they can tragically go wrong. Like with any kind of livestock, um, diseases travel very quickly and, and, um, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking at times, but in other times it's so satisfying that, uh, you know, when we have the money and we have the locations and um, the market for selling honey seems to be good, um, uh, more and more people are, are buying local honey and um, we like that. We try to um, really uh, take pride in keeping the price reasonable for people to buy, um, which I think is, is good and bad for us. But, I mean, I, I, I'm still of the opinion that we should keep it, you know, reasonable so that uh, we don't right. overprice ourselves like maple syrup, say, or something like that. I, Gentlemen, I we, I, I'm sorry to say we were just about out of time. I want to thank Vincent K. Plows into short, <laughs> swords into plowshares, honey. And uh, Steve Muno, who is the manager of Massaro Farm for Chris Ferrio and Richard Hill. Uh, this is the Organic Farm Stand, and we will be back in two weeks. And uh, stay tuned to WPKN for more great programming. And we're going to go out with our usual theme, Howard Tate, Organic Love. I can tell by the look in your eyes, baby. You need the one thing that I can describe. Organic love. 100% natural, baby. This is the Gaia Gram. 
Environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. A vicious wildfire that began the morning of December 30th in Boulder, Colorado, swallowed about 1,600 acres in a matter of hours, burning hundreds of homes and prompting orders for some 35,000 people across two communities to evacuate. Amid historically powerful hurricane-like winds and drought-parched land, some 370 homes were destroyed in a single subdivision just west of the town of Superior, while another 210 homes may have been lost in Old Town Superior in Boulder County. No deaths or missing people were reported immediately. Representative Joe Negussi of Colorado's 2nd Congressional District told CNN, these are unprecedented wildfires that have just created a level of devastation and destruction that our state has not experienced before. On Sunday, the Kodiak Tide Gauge Station in Alaska hit 67 degrees at 